So yeah, conditions. So this morning I said I'd talk about the Bojanga, the factors of enlightenment. Um, and there are a number of questions too that I'd like to address. But I also don't want to go over time because of the implications in terms of a number of things. <laughs> so, what I thought to do was do not a really deep presentation on them, just a sense of bringing them into our awareness and some of the ways they're thought about and some of the ways they're helpful here. Yeah? And for my practice, they're most helpful in terms of a reminder around balance. Okay. The beginning of the retreat, we're working with drowsiness, sloth and torpor, and then waves of restlessness. Yeah, and we're finding our way with this often alternating unpleasant experience. As the retreat settles, you can find you're in a slightly different seesaw. And it can be helpful to contemplate these factors that arise from practice and how we find balance with them. So, the factors of enlightenment. So, those of you who are familiar with Theravadan countries and Theravadan practice will have been, if you've been in monasteries or where monastics are or whatever, you'll know when people are sick, there is a traditional chant that is chanted. And I thought I'd read the English of it. It's not the most beautiful English translation, but we'll talk about it a bit further. It's just a lovely um, reflection on them. The enlightenment factors are reckoned mindfulness, then investigation of dharmas, effort, joy, tranquility. The enlightenment factors are thus further collectedness, equanimity, enlightenment factors. These seven, which the all-seeing Muni has taught perfectly, developed and frequently practiced, bring about the super-knowledges, Nibbāna and enlightenment. By the speaking of this truth, ever in safety, safety may you be. At one time the Lord saw Moggallana and Venerable Kāsapa suffering from fever. He pointed out the seven enlightenment factors and they, overjoyed, were at that moment free of disease. So, Moggallana and Kasapa, many of you will be familiar with. They're a couple of the leading disciples at the time of the Buddha. The moment free of disease. By the speaking of this truth, ever in safety may you be. Once, when the king of Dhamma, the Buddha, was afflicted by fever. He asked Prachunda, so one of the younger monks, on this matter that he should speak affectionately. And then having rejoiced, he arose from that diseased condition. By the speaking of his truth, ever in safety may you be. Those diseases were got rid of by those three 
great sages, as the path destroys the defilements, attainment according with the nature of Dharma, by the speaking of this truth, ever in safety may you be. So, I find it a really interesting contemplation, the sense of them as being a kind of, even to recollect them can be a kind of medicine. To recollect the the possibility of the mind once it's no longer really weighed down by the hindrances, you know, the moments we have that experience. For most of us, it's an ebb and flow, isn't it? Of more um, composed states of mind, and then states where we're believing the mind, believing the thinking, and a kind of bit pressed down. So. In relation to that, I thought I'd read one of the actual stories, just because it it gives a sense. So, if I can find it. And it just so echoed an earlier sutta we read, so... At one time, the Blessed One was dwelling at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, the squirrel's sanctuary. Now at that time, the Venerable Mahakasapa was dwelling in the Papali cave, sick, afflicted, gravely ill. Then in the evening, the Blessed One emerged from seclusion and approached the Venerable Mahakasapa. He sat down on the appointed seat and said to the Venerable Mahakasapa, I hope you are bearing up, Kasapa. I hope you are getting better. I hope that your painful feelings are subsiding and not increasing, and that their subsiding, not their increase, is to be discerned. Venerable Sir, I am not bearing up. I am not getting better. Strong, painful feelings are increasing in me, not subsiding, and their increase, not their subsiding, is to be discerned. So we know he, Kasapa, was a arahant. So it wasn't that he's not talking about aversion to it all, but just that actually he's got a body and this is the experience. These seven factors of enlightenment, Kasapa, have been rightly expounded by me when developed and cultivated they lead to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. So the sense that there is a path, path of practice. What seven? The enlightenment factor of mindfulness, sati, has been rightly expounded by me. When developed and cultivated, it leads to direct knowledge. The enlightenment factor of equanimity, peka, has been rightly expounded by me. When developed and cultivated, it leads to direct knowledge. And they, they, here we're just hearing the last, you know, the first and the last, they've abridged it a bit. But, so he goes on to say they've been rightly expounded and they can be developed and cultivated. And then Kasapa says, Mahakasapa says, surely, blessed one, there are factors of enlightenment. Surely, fortunate one, 
There are factors of enlightenment. And that is what the Blessed One said. Elated, the Venerable Mahakasapa delighted in the Blessed One's statement, and the Venerable Mahakasapa recovered from the illness. In such a way, he was cured. So, in this part of the uh, Sanyuta, it goes on with the different stories of how the Buddha was cured. How different ones of them actually found just contemplating this brought enough well-being to actually start to work with the fevers. I can't find it, but they talk in one of these suttas about how Mahakasapa's blood started to change. So I find it just fascinating really, just that sense of how connected mind and body are and how powerful it can be to bring wholesome states of consciousness to mind. So, picking up the Anapanasati Sutta, where I didn't read the last bit of it, with We've been cultivating the breathing in, breathing out, knowing the long breath, knowing the short breath. This, maybe to read it again. Breathing in long, we understand, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, we understand. I breathe out long. Breathing in short, we understand. I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, we understand. I breathe out short. We train thus. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body of the breath. We train thus. I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body of the breath. We train thus. I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formation. We train thus. I shall breathe out tranquilizing the bodily formation. And then we move into the realm of feeling. We train thus. I shall breathe in experiencing rapture. We train thus. I shall breathe out experiencing rapture. We train thus. I shall breathe out I breathe in experiencing pleasure. We train thus, I shall breathe out experiencing pleasure. So these states naturally start to arise when we're just subtly attuning to the breath. A sense of pity, it's called a kind of very energised state and a sense of well-being. it can be we just touch these from a moment, sense of ease, of it being all right to be here. So we train thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the mental formation, which are these two aspects. We train thus, I shall breathe out experiencing the mental formation. We train thus, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the mental formation. We train thus, I shall breathe out tranquilizing the mental formation. Mm. 
So this process of, of what happens when we deepen and settle with an object, you know, it might be the breath, it might be the body, just whatever it is, and that there becomes a sense of ease and well-being. It may be, for many of us, that when that ease and well-being arises, a kind of openness happens, and then all kinds of undigested feeling thoughts start rushing in. I'm sure you've had that experience. But we try to come back to just back into the body, back with the short breath, the long breath, keeping kind of groundedness with this other experience. It's very common once we start moving into the realm of feeling for it to get very chaotic. But with time it tends to settle down. And then the mind goes everywhere. So that's why the enlightenment factors contemplating them is really helpful. How do the four foundations of mindfulness developed and cultivated fulfill the seven enlightenment factors? So in contemplating the breath, we're actually contemplating the foundations of mindfulness, body, feeling, mind, mind states. It, It starts to come together. So whenever a person abides contemplating the body as a body, so breath is breath, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. If you're like me, you've had to work with that little statement for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Particularly the grief. So sometimes there, in all these teachings there are just little bits that are what we need to work with. We don't need the whole thing. We've got to just understand what it might be like to let go of our sadness for a time. So in this the encouragement is that we've just put this stuff down for a moment and that we've established well he calls it unremitting mindfulness so we're really present with what is happening. On whatever occasion mindfulness is established, on that occasion the mindfulness enlightenment factor is aroused and it is developed and by development it will come to fulfilment. So we've got a process happening here. Abiding thus mindful, we investigate and examine that state with wisdom and embark upon a full inquiry into it. So this sense of really starting to know what's going on, what has conditioned something, what our response to it is, knowing what feeling does. On whatever occasion, abiding thus mindful, a person investigates, examines that state with wisdom and embarks on a full inquiry into it. On that occasion, the investigation of states, enlightenment factor, so Dhamma Vichaya is aroused and developed, and by development it comes to fulfilment. And one who investigates and examines that state with wisdom 
and embarks upon a full inquiry into it, tireless energy is aroused. On whatever occasion tireless energy is aroused, and a person who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it, on that occasion the energy enlightenment factor is aroused and they develop it, and by development it comes to fulfilment. In one who has aroused energy, unworldly rapture arises, so the sense of pity right, that we can have with the breath, just the delight of being here breathing. So, on whatever occasion unworldly rapture arises in a person, and why it's called unworldly is it's not dependent on how it feels eating ice cream. Yeah? It's, it's dependent more on this really wholesome cultivation. That it, it's, it's arising as part of the development of understanding. So it has a particular quality to it. So on that occasion, that enlightenment fact is aroused, we develop it, and by development comes to fill fulfilment. In one who is rapturous, such a strong word, but be careful with it. The body and the mind become tranquil. On whatever occasion, the body and the mind become tranquil in someone who is rapturous. On that occasion, the tranquility enlightenment factor is aroused in them, and we develop it. By development, it comes to fulfilment. So you'll see it as part of the process when we're working with the breath. The mind gets really delighted, or on your walking path, the mind gets really delighted, and when the delight, the waves of delight settle a bit, you get this deeper sense of tranquility. Calm, steady, present. Yeah. So then, it's a case of really strengthening these qualities. In one whose body is tranquil and who feels pleasure, the mind becomes collected. On whatever occasion the mind becomes collected, in a person whose body is tranquil and who feels pleasure, on that occasion, the collectedness, the samadhi, enlightenment factor is aroused in them. We develop it. By development comes to fulfilment. We closely look on with equanimity at the mind thus concentrated, collected. On whatever occasion a person closely looks on with equanimity, the mind thus concentrated. On that occasion, the equanimity enlightenment factor is aroused. We develop it, and by development it comes to fulfilment. So, a bit like you recognise that the minds become really still and present, and it's very pleasant, but you just know it for what it is. It's come about because of the way you've been paying attention. So we don't start believing it, we don't start grasping it, we don't start believing this is the only way experience should ever be because it feels so nice. Yeah? We know it's conditioned and it has a certain function at a certain time. 
So it's one of the tricks, isn't it, of being on, on retreat because if we're not careful we get hooked on wanting particular experiences. Don't we? You know, and that becomes a real obstacle. And then it becomes a real obstacle in the cut and thrust of our daily lives. Yeah. So this essential quality of equanimity. It's the same quality as we're developing with the Brahma Vihar. We understand how things arise and how they cease. So in the text on mindfulness of breathing we go through the different foundations. So here just with body, but the sense of we, whatever's going on, we're just noticing these factors. And what I find really helpful, and was talking with someone yesterday about, you know, asking about something, is the sense that this, they become a way of bringing balance. Yeah? A bit like with the um, faculties, you know, faith, energy, mindfulness, collectedness, wisdom, we notice what is present and not present, and it can help us just attune a bit. These also are a way of attuning. So in a sutta here, in the um, Samyutta, The Buddha talks about working with them. And let me hope I'm in the right place here. Um, right. So I'll read just a bit more deeply into the text, just starting there. So the Buddha starts talking about the sluggish mind, which we know. On an occasion when the mind becomes sluggish, it is untimely to develop develop the enlightenment factor of tranquility, the enlightenment factor of samadhi, the enlightenment factor of equanimity. For what reason? because the mind is sluggish and it is difficult to arouse it with those things. So we're really recognising that teachings about medicines and when the mind's already like this, it doesn't need calming down. Suppose a person wants to make a small fire flare up if he throws wet grass, wet cow dung, and wet timber onto it, sprays it with water, and scatters soil over it, would he be able to make the small fire spring up? And they answer, no, venerable sir. (laughs) (coughs) So too, on the occasion when the mind becomes sluggish, it is untimely to develop the enlightenment factor of tranquility, 
the enlightenment factor of collectiveness, samadhi, and the enlightenment factor of equanimity. For what reason? Because the mind is sluggish and it is difficult to arouse it with those things. So he goes on, when the mind is sluggish, it is timely to develop the enlightenment factor of discrimination of states, the enlightenment factor of energy, the enlightenment factor of rapture. For what reason? Because the mind is sluggish and it is easy to arouse with those things. Suppose a person wanted to make a small fire flare up. If they throw on dry grass, dry cow dung and dry timber, blow on it and do not scatter soil over it, would they be able to make the small fire flare up? Yes, venerable sir. So too, on the occasion when the mind becomes sluggish, it is timely to develop the enlightenment factor of discrimination of states, the enlightenment factor of energy, and the enlightenment factor of rapture. For what reason? Because the mind is sluggish. So he then talks about the excited mind. So we get in that sense that we have where the mind can be just either very, it's got so peaceful here, and we're turning into a stone. (laughs) Yeah? And Ajahn Chah was really harsh. One of my friends had a real love for cultivating samadhi. They do get sleepy. And when Ajahn, they met Ajahn Chah and they were asking something, he said to them, do you want to be a stone? Yeah. So to realise we're, we're not just trying to get ourselves so peaceful, we're not feeling anything. Mm. Yeah. So dulled down. It's very pleasant, but it's not really the point. Yeah. So, on the occasion when the mind becomes excited. It is untimely to develop the enlightenment factor of discrimination of states, the enlightenment factor of energy, and the enlightenment factor of rapture. For what reason? Because the mind is excited, and it is difficult to calm it down with those things. So, he talks about, well, what if you're trying to put out a bonfire and you start throwing on dry grass, dried cow dung, you know? In a sense, you just get it flaring bigger. Would not be able to extinguish it, you know? You're getting a real conflagration going, aren't you? So, he says, it's untimely. Yeah, you need to be calming it down a bit. And what's that like? in our practice. You can feel sometimes, because it's often going in waves, that we've become really and our mind started to go and maybe that we're really very, very sharp in terms of even discrimination. The mind's got really switched on. 
but we've lost ground and we've lost a kind of steadiness with this. It's got a bit overheated. You can feel it kind of whole system's tightening. Eyes are getting really sharp. Yeah? You can often feel it in the eyes when you're out of balance. Because there's such a powerful sense door. So we just, we know, oh, no, and as I was saying to someone yesterday, it isn't the time to be going on power walks. <laughs> yeah, there are times for that. We actually, we actually get out and we start, even if we start that way, we start calming. You know, a bit like that question the other day with restlessness. It's a bit like you start letting the mind settle a bit. It's not that we're not still having some inquiry happen, but we're just rebalancing. Just coming into the rhythm of the breath, the rhythm of the feet. This quality that brings a sense of collectiveness and samadhi, rhythm. Yes. So, so, what is timely? Development of tranquility, collectedness, equanimity. Because it is easy to calm down with those things. So, the work really is in noticing, and the Buddha says, but mindfulness, I say, is always useful. So we've got these seven factors, and, but as a kind of central factor, we have mindfulness. And this ability to notice what's going on and respond appropriately. Yes? What are the discrimination of seeds? So it's a bit like you can, you know, the. Um, Occluded mind is occluded, you know, you know that bright mind is bright, yeah. the concentrated mind is... You, is you're, there another word for that? Um, is it effort? I mean, it's, it, it's different from effort, it could be called discernment, yeah. Yeah. a sense of being able to um, tell what's happening. It has energy certainly there, as you can hear. Because, but it, 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 it's kind of got a wisdom to it. Get what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's about we can notice, oh, I'm getting drowsy. This is a discriminative faculty, you know. This is investigation of Dharma, that particular quality. That's also called investigation. Yeah. Yeah. Or analysis. Have to be, analysis can be helpful. We have to be careful because we don't want to get too complicated. Mm. Yeah. No, because most of us have very developed minds 
and we don't want to go off into a whole proliferation. It's just to notice and know what the medicines are to bring the state of balance so we can see really clearly. We can see things coming and going. We can see what's, what's here. Yeah. But yeah, investigation can be a helpful way to think of it. Okay. So, there are a number of questions here. Um, some I might have to attend to later. Um, about the sutra I read last night on that little piece, mm -hmm. I'll, I'm actually getting you copies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I find it one of the most encouraging things. Mm -hmm. So, on to the encouragement factor. Um, a comment which I can really appreciate that that I'm finding the text to be almost depressing because it sounds practically impossible you know, to, to actually go to the beyond and I'm sure all of us know that response yeah? because it is a very ultimate kind of teaching Mm. And how do we work with stuff that's so ultimate when here we are living our complex lives? And for me, I, why I wanted to share it was not that it's telling us how we should be or what we need to happen, but because it is a lovely exposition of the Four Noble Truths, and also it points to a possibility. So I don't know about some of you, but I've had to work with a great deal of meaninglessness. What is the point yeah, of being here? No, I don't know, we all have different tendencies, but a kind of hopeless pointlessness. Yes, it's even a painful thing to name. And having a sense that there is a practice path and there is a possibility of freeing up, I find, gives me strength. Yeah? Now, maybe the mind will not let go in this lifetime. But I can have been setting the conditions where whatever happens next, there is a stream of skillfulness. Yeah. And know that there is this possibility. And as I was saying with my mother, that we can get it so it's not so excruciating. 
It is possible to cross over the ocean to go to the other shore. And it's really tricky stuff because it sounds, you know, we talk about cultivating and and that's part of it, it's about ripening the heart and then there's the fact that it's here and now, this possibility. And we have to hold the ultimate and this day-to-day experience together, the conditioned and unconditioned. And as I said right at the beginning, this sense, we don't know who we are. We don't really know the rightness of our hearts. At what moment of mindful attention the mind will actually cut through to a more profound experience of freedom. So it is very confronting aspects of the text and that's why my encouragement has been to really not take it as a judgment on our lives. It would be really easy to have that happen because it is such an ultimate text. But it shows a pathway that we can start going along to some extent. And it is impossible to go there. That's the trick of it, isn't it? There is nowhere to go. There is nothing to do. So we have to keep holding these paradoxes. Some people are attending to time. Some of us dwell coming out of time at different moments. There is time and there is a timeless. And to keep not taking sides in this experience. And we're still kind of in the Nibbana thing. But my intention tomorrow is really to look at path cultivation. You know that actually you know, on the relative level there are things we can be doing that help, that make our lives feel connected, meaningful, a blessing for ourselves and others. Yeah. But I certainly know how almost depressing it can feel. Yeah. Because you know, it asks in some way seems to ask something that isn't possible for us to do. So let's talk about it more. What it's like to really do this practice. Um. Oh, all right. Mm-hmm.
five minutes and I thought maybe I'd attend then to a couple of other things that are more um, about what this practice feels like. That when we start softening and being more attuned, that it's not necessarily pleasant. That, that there can be um, felt experiences of, of you know, constriction of our heart, of, of states of fear, terror, anxiety, these things. You know, what do we do with it? What's the medicine? And that would always be my encouragement. You know, what, when I'm with these things, some of them, since everything is waking us up, are really things we need to know about. They can, we can get real insights into the tendencies and habits and the very, the very primary ways we conceive reality that are give, limiting us in some way, that bring a kind of compulsion. And as we know, when we sit and when we walk, we lie down, we can get, we can start sensing into some of the underlying compulsions. And we've had, you know, I write, the Buddha talks about some of them. But we, we don't need to go into that kind of detail, but more into the actual experience of, of what it's like to be in this fragile form that's impacted by things, where it matters what happens, where there is a sense of me here and you there. And the more we start to work with the way we have start to know even what shapes us, our responses, we start to get more choice. I, I notice my mind, I mean, some moments go to irritation and anger in response to painful conditions. This current predicament is to go to sadness. Yeah. And it's very helpful for me to have noticed that because then when something happens, I know it might not be sad. Mm. You know, on some kind of level, puts more of a question mark there. I know my, my friend might get angry about it or might get something else about it. It starts to loosen up the perceptions. Something's happened that is painful. We all respond differently. And when we start to understand how we respond, we can start to choose from this quality of the Brahma Vihar. What is a compassionate response? So first, for this tendency to sadness, it needs a lot of compassion. 
you know, I could go and find out about the historical roots, and of course we all have some sense of how everything that's happened to us shapes what's here at this moment. But it can be equally powerful to be prepared to be present, but not in a tight way. When these feeling tones, these states arise, my encouragement would be to check out if the Brahma Vihar are present. That we have compassion for this creature born into this fragile form. I love the night. Some people are terrified. Just knowing how it can be so different, what does it need, what is it telling us? How, how do we hold with being so vulnerable? And where is our refuge? So to really come into this experience of refuge. The Buddha knowing the Dharma. The ability of the mind to be present the way it is. This supreme refuge. So with these painful states, you know, I've done a lot of bowing practice with them. Yeah. A sense of bringing the sense of refuge. Yeah. We'll talk more about that tonight. I have to stop here.